Uh, it's good to see you, or in case of those watching at home, uh, not see you. Over the next three Sundays, we're going to be sitting down in multiple locations in the first century and in Israel with a man called Jesus. Maybe if you're uh, visiting or you're watching in, somebody's invited you to, to, to watch this. Maybe you're not familiar with who Jesus is. Jesus was a man born in Israel in the first century who claimed to be God himself, who impacted history more than any other person has ever done, and who we believe can transform your life for the better. We're going to sit with Jesus for three meals, dinner, supper, and then breakfast, to see who he is, to see what he's like, to understand why he died. And then when he came back to life again three days later, as the Bible tells us unapologetically that he was resurrected, why that makes all the difference in the world for you and for all of us. So we want to encourage you to bring your questions. Be prepared to challenge us, but also be prepared to be challenged as we look at these three meals. Let's dive into the first one the dinner. And to help you follow along with what I'm going to say, I've broken it down into, first, into three things. And the first one is this. This is a story of devotion that is disputed. We're in Bethany, a small village just outside of Jerusalem. And if we're going to let our, our senses do the work of, of setting the ground, understanding where we're at, we can establish pretty quickly what's going on. What can we see? As we look out from the the house where these events take place, maybe we sit outside having a a cool lemonade in the heat of the day, and what we'll see is lots and lots of people heading in to Jerusalem. And we know why. As Josh just read that uh, passage to us, it was approaching very shortly the Passover, a Jewish religious festival, the most prominent celebration that the Jewish people had in their yearly calendar, a time where they remembered what God had done for them, how God had rescued his people out of slavery in a foreign land, and how he had passed over his own people's guilt and wrongdoing because their lives had been covered, because they had sacrificed an innocent lamb and spread the blood over the door. And so as God came in judgment, they were spared and then they were freed. And so we see all these people coming into Jerusalem to to celebrate. But we also not just open our eyes, we open our ears. And if we're listening carefully, as we sit in John chapter 12, we hear rumours that are increasing in their volume and increasing in their intensity that the religious leaders of the day the most well-known most well-respected people in that community their hatred towards Jesus well it's reached a crescendo Jesus has upset the apple cart. He's disturbed the peace. He's set them on the back foot. And they've been from afar and then getting closer to Jesus and and been worked up. And as we sit in Bethany, we can hear that these rumours that we've reached a tipping point. 
In fact, they've gone so far that they've recruited the people. If anybody sees Jesus in the city, let us know. We're out to get him. The time has come. But we can also taste. We can taste this excellent meal that's been put together by this lady called Martha. The Bible paints her as somebody who's a real servant heart. Somebody who likes to get things done. Somebody who runs her home and runs her family and probably runs half the neighborhood too. She's always busy and she's always serving and here she's serving Jesus a meal. Probably she's the host, the one doing everything. Her brother Lazarus is sat at the table with Jesus and Jesus' friends. And we can taste, probably, the food that's being made. And we can imagine that it's a, a typical meal for that, uh, that time period and that place. Lots of small courses that keep coming. A bit of bread, a bit of meat. But we can also taste something else. As we sit around the table, we can taste a note of, of just thankfulness. A flavour that people here, as they look at Jesus, are so grateful. John tells us this this meal was was given in the honour of Jesus. And he notes, and the people that he notes that are there are certainly coming because of what Jesus has already done for them. Verse 2 says, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. And Mary, here is a family. We just read John chapter 11, the bit in the Bible, immediately before what Josh read. We would have read the story of a family who have experienced the love and power of Jesus. Lazarus, we're told, whom Jesus raised, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus will never get away from that moniker. He'll always be the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. And every time you write, read his name in, in John's gospel, John says, it's the guy who was raised from the dead. Just in case anybody would forget that. And you can read in chapter 11 the whole story of how Jesus delays coming, but then does come. And how Jesus interacts with love with the two sisters that are grieving their dead brother. And even though Jesus knows that he's going to raise him, he weeps with them. He cares for them. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so as we sit at the table, we can taste the thankfulness that this family in particular have got for Jesus. So what happens? Let's just run through the events again. And firstly, there's an act of outrageous devotion. We read, then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume, She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. This pure nard, this perfume, would likely have been some sort of family heirloom. A perfume that apparently comes from the Himalayan region of India. So not exactly something that you can pop to the shops and buy. You can't just pop down your local Tesco Express and I'll have a bottle of pure nard, please. It's incredibly rare and incredibly valuable. It would have been sealed in a jar. And it was, as we learn in the story, worth around a year's wages. 
and it's probably been set aside for the burial of the most prominent member of the family. And this jar of perfume, this is a a one-and-done sort of deal. Because once you've broken it open, it doesn't come with a nice cap, nice seal top like we get uh, our perfumes in today. No, once it was open, it, it had to be used. So it's not as if I, we can have a bit and you can have a bit and you can have a little. This was a one-time deal. There was no resealing it for later use. And Mary pours it out on somebody else. Not a member of the family, not herself, but on Jesus. And it doesn't even seem as though this is a particularly prominent occasion. More than that, as she breaks out the perfume, she anoints the, the lowliest part of Jesus. John tells us that Jesus was reclining at the table. He would have been sort of laid at the table with his head, sort of like this, head at this end with the food, and his feet and body further away. And she goes to the, to the point of, of furthest away and goes to the, the point of his body, which would have been the, the dirtiest the part of his body considered most unclean. And with her actions, she says, even the least of you is worthy of the greatest honour. We're told elsewhere that she also points, uh, pours perfume on his head. But jo- jo- John is focusing us in on this, this least part. Great honour for the least part of Jesus. And then, as though that weren't enough, she wipes his feet with her hair. She acts, we might say, a little loosely. In that culture, a woman's hair was her her glory. And it would have been up and done. And she lets it down. And as she does that, she's making a statement of, of openness and vulnerability and even intimacy. Not in any sort of sexual way, but certainly in a, a, a shameless way. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks about this action. She just wants to show Jesus how much he means to her. This is the the heart of the story, an act of outrageous devotion. So what happens next? Now we get a, a disingenuous objection. Here's how one commentator writes about it. He says, everyone at that meal saw an act of surpassing loveliness. Except one. Judas saw it as an extravagant waste. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He says, what a waste. How can the spending of so much achieve so little? That's what Judas seems to say. He says it lacks common sense. It lacks economic value. But as John tells us this story, he exposes the motives of Judas. It comes from no concern for the poor, but from self-interest. If there's more money in the pot for the poor people, then people are less likely to notice when I steal some. Perhaps you've utilised that same logic when it comes to a box of chocolates. Easier to steal one early on when it's quite full than if it's quite empty near the end 
It's very obvious if there's only one chocolate left and you steal it. Judas wants a full money back because he's in charge of it. And then he can take some for himself. How does Jesus respond? Is Judas right? Or is Mary right? Well, then we get a strong defense of the action by Jesus. Jesus has no truck at all with this objection. Leave her alone, he says. And it's not that he doesn't care about the poor. It's just that he recognizes what nobody, in the else, in the, nobody else in the room seems to. This is a significant occasion. And this is a significant act by Mary. And the narrative ends on this note, Jesus saying, you will not always have me. So we understand what happened. But what's this story about? Well, let's secondly look at a study in costs. Contrasted. There are two main characters that are being played off against each other in this narrative, at this dinner table, Mary and Judas. And it's going to be revealing to us to compare and contrast their actions. Let's do it on a surface level, as though we're, we're watching in and we don't have any of the other insights. Well, look at Mary. Mary, not serving like her sister Martha, not helping. Mary, wasting precious resources. Mary even letting her hair down and not in some going out on the town but in some sort of proper women don't act like that. Look at Judas. Judas presents as a man who cares about the poor. A desire to make good, wise decisions. To think about other people, not just ourselves. He presents well. He's going up in our estimation. She's potentially going down. But let's compare them at a a deeper level. Here's Mary. Not worried about what anybody else thinks. Driven simply, solely by a desire to honour Jesus. And then here's Judas. Who sees an opportunity for personal gain, literally being poured out in front of him. Only because of John's additional notes do we understand what's really going on with Judas. John tells us the backstory that he wouldn't have known at the time. That Judas liked being in charge of the money. That Judas was a thief. Because of John's commentary, we see the selfishness behind Judas's comment. And only because of Jesus' defence of Mary are we sure that her actions are right and good. But let's dig in a little bit and let's think about our own hearts and our own motivations. I want to talk to you for a minute about opportunity cost. Some of you know that I studied economics at university and using the word studied in the loosest possible way. One of the few things that I remember from economics is this term, opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is, here's the the formal definition, the foregone benefit that would have been derived from an option not chosen. 
That's quite wordy, isn't it? Opportunity cost is what it costs you to do the thing you're, you're doing. So, for example, if you're here in church this afternoon and you're a football fan, the opportunity cost of being here is that you don't get to watch the, the half-four kickoff in the Premier League this afternoon. That's the cost, one of the costs of being here, the opportunity cost. If you're watching at home, maybe you've got two screens on, so I can't comment. For Judas, the opportunity cost of devotion to Jesus is too high. To be devoted to Jesus will cost him too much. Too much of his independence. Too much of his stolen revenue. For Mary, the opportunity cost of devotion, well, we could say it's the, the value of the perfume. It's all the money that's, that's tied up in this jar, this half a litre of perfume. And the opportunity cost of devotion to Jesus for Mary is the fact that other people may look down on her. The comments, just like Judas's, questioning her wisdom, questioning her motives. The, the comments that might say, Mary, you, you look a little bit dodgy here. Can't believe she's let her hair down. The shame that may come upon her because of this act of devotion, this act of love, this act of intimacy. What does it cost to love Jesus like this? To worship Jesus like this? What is it in the terms of your own life and your own heart that makes the idea of following, following and worshipping Jesus seem like too much? Is it the reputation? What will people think of me? Is it the lifestyle and the decisions that you've made? But I'd have to give up this. Or I'd have to, to stop doing that. Or I'd have to start doing X, Y, or Z. It's interesting that in the middle of this story, the, the, one of the opportunity costs that are contrasted between the two of them is about how other people can be blessed. Judas says, look who's going to miss out if you act like this. Think of the poor. And there's a sense in which, if we didn't know his motivations, we'd say that's a legitimate argument. To be devoted to Jesus in the way that Mary is, other people seem to miss out. Other needy people. This is the argument that, that Judas puts forward. Other people are hurt by your wholehearted commitment to Jesus. But I think there's a little note in this story which I think that says that's not the case. Because as Mary anoints Jesus' feet, as she pours the perfume out on him, we're told the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's another sensory thing going on here. That everybody in the room and all those around the table and all those serving can smell what Mary has done, the sweetness of this act of devotion. 
And I think there's a truth coming out here to say that other people will be more blessed by our devotion to Jesus than if we don't worship Jesus. And maybe if you're from a, a home where others in your household or the family members or your friendship group, they don't know Jesus and they don't worship Jesus, maybe you can think, but they would be worse off if I followed Jesus. I'm going to spoil the group dynamic. I'm going to make family mealtimes difficult because, because I'll be different. Other people will be more blessed by our devotion to Jesus than, than if we don't worship Jesus. And yes, there are still other people to think about. There's still the poor to, to care for and give to. But don't believe that the opportunity cost of devotion to Jesus is too great. But, and here's where our third point comes in. We've got to ask this question, and maybe you have got, are asking this question now in your own heart and mind. Is Jesus worthy of this level of devotion? Is Jesus worthy of this outrageous act of devotion? Let's think thirdly of a greater gift that is anticipated. Judas sizes up the events, doesn't he? And he looks at the bottle of perfume. Maybe he smells what it is. He recognises this, this, this rare perfume, this pure nard. And he says, that's a year's wages. Maybe he's being conservative. Maybe he's over-egging. But let's call it, I don't know, 20K in today's money. Is Jesus worth paying that out? Maybe we could look at some of the great christian buildings the great cathedrals that have been built costing small or even large fortunes think of the sagrada familia uh, tom, tom and claire were recently in barcelona that huge cathedral that's still being built think of notre dame in paris think of saint paul's cathedral in london is jesus worthy of that level of, of cost, of expense. But let's make it more personal. Let's come down from those, the heights of those great buildings and, and ask, is Jesus worth me giving up my retirement plans? Or Jesus giving up, me, me giving up this particular lifestyle? Or this particular preference. The job that I have. The people I spend time with. The things that I love. Is Jesus worth it? Worth our time, worth our effort. Giving up our evenings for. So that we might serve other people. So that we might pray with others. So that we might tell other people about Jesus. Is he enough? Is he worthy? And Mary answers that question with her actions. At least for her, she says, yes. Yes, he's worth this taking this family heirloom and, and pouring it out. She knows him. She loves Jesus. And for her, there is no one else and nothing else like him. And firstly, she looks backwards. I think it's safe to assume 
And she looks back to the events of the previous chapter in John's book and the raising of Lazarus. She remembers Jesus coming to her small village because he's heard about Lazarus's illness. And she remembers how Jesus specifically, personally requested to see her as he came in. How he engaged with her emotions and her heart and her spirit before he then, you know, to just top it all off, raises her brother from the grave. Jesus always knew that he was going to raise Lazarus. The story tells us that. But even knowing that, and before he does it, he gets alongside her so that he might weep with her. He knows her. And he loves her. This man, she says, as I look back, is worthy of honour for his compassion as much as his transformational, resurrecting power. She looks back and finds him worthy. But then in her act of honouring Jesus, in anointing him with a perfume then, she then either, either deliberately or inadvertently calls on those watching on and those reading 2,000 years later to look forwards from that day. Listen to Jesus' words again as he responds to the complaint of Judas. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Mary is the provider of a great act of honour, but she's also a prophet, foretelling that one day soon, this man whom she adores and worships and loves will need to be anointed in death. In first century Palestine, when a body was laid to rest after death, it would quickly need to be attended to with strong smelling spices for it would quickly begin to rot and smell. In six days time, after the events that we're reading about, Jesus' body will lay in a tomb cut out of the rock in Jerusalem. And we read that women will come early in the morning the day after the Sabbath, when Jesus' body has been in the ground for a day and a half, and they come with spices to anoint the body, to cover up the smell. Because Jesus will have been crucified by the Roman governor at the behest of the Jewish religious leaders who we've already talked about. And they will have achieved their end in killing him. but they will have spectacularly failed to achieve their true goal. Listen again to verse 10. The chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, as well as Jesus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Or we could read in the previous chapter, them saying this, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And another the high priest saying you do not realize that it is better for you that one may die for uh, <clears throat> sorry one may die for the people than the whole nation perish 
They thought that killing Jesus would secure their own positions, would protect the nation from the harm, and would stop, ultimately, people believing in him. But when Jesus died, he did not die for himself, but for the ones that he loved. Jesus died for a nation, not just for Jewish people, but for all people who would believe in him. We've talked about this great act of love from Mary, but her devotion is only a dim echo of what Jesus will shortly do for her. He will die for her. He is fully deserving of honour. He is worthy. For he dies in the place of those that are not deserving, that are not worthy, those who will never have a dinner given in their honour. For when their hearts and lives are revealed before a holy God, they will, we will, every one of us fall short. Mary is the recipient of what we ought to call grace. What does that word mean? What does grace mean? I think it looks like a dinner. A dinner table where an enemy has been given a place of honour and has somehow been brought into relationship with those he has hated and rejected and sought to destroy. He eats and drinks with the ones he has wronged. And he's honoured. Grace smells like a house filled with the delightful aroma of perfume. While the world wars and plots all around. There is a place where those who are in can be considered and confident that there is goodness and purpose. And there's Jesus. What does grace sound like? It sounds like a father saying to a wayward child, Welcome home. It sounds like your sins are forgiven. All the wrong that you have done, all the wrong you have said, all the wrong you have thought, you are forgiven. Grace is offered out to every one of us. Those of us that are in the room this afternoon, those watching online right now, those who might watch this video in 10 years on YouTube. God himself has paid the highest price for you. He has given his life for you. He has suffered for you. And even today, Jesus welcomes you. And when you know this Jesus, well then, you will want to honour him. There will be an urge and an instinct in your heart and your life to, to honour Jesus. Financially, prayerfully, with our time and with our futures. There will be the urge 
of a soldier serving his king, saying, what can I do to serve you today? The opportunity cost may seem high for devotion to Jesus, but in fact, the opportunity cost of devoting yourself to Jesus, of not devoting yourself to Jesus, is far higher. You will miss out on being known and loved and welcomed and forgiven now and forever. Our final song is going to draw us in to the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But it will leave us making this declaration. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And if you know Jesus, if you experienced something of that divine aroma, then that is something that you will want to sing. And you will recognise that you don't always want to say it, and it's not always true, but you want it to be more true today than it was yesterday, and you'll want it to be even truer tomorrow. You'll want to give everything for Jesus, for he has given everything for you. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you that there is somebody worthy of this level of devotion. Somebody who has paid a greater cost than we could ever imagine so that we might know you, so that we might be freed, so that we might live for you. Father, we pray as we go through this Easter series, you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, more truly, and you would bring each one of us to know the joy of worshipping him. Father, help each one of us to consider how we might respond this afternoon. Or let us not be those who go away and forget immediately what we've heard, but instead Lord, those who go away and, and respond. Lord, in praise, in repentance, in worship. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.